I'm Michael Lerner, and um, in 1976, I co-founded uh, Commonweal with uh, Burr Hanneman, who is still with us and active in Commonweal, and uh, Carolyn Brown, who has departed for the other realm. And um, Burr and I have been here for a long time. And um, the new school, which you're part of, is one of 12 programs at Commonweal. And um, Commonweal is a very flat organization where the program directors have all the authority and the power. And the, we're sort of the maintenance crew that you know, holds the place together so they can do their work at a certain level. And so um, we work in four fields in healing, learning, caring for the earth, and justice. And that includes uh, Rachel Naomi Remen's Institute for the Study of Health and Illness that has the Healer's Art Program in 50 medical schools around the world and the Commonweal Cancer Health Program, which for 26 years has done week-long retreats for cancer patients. The Collaborative on Health and the Environment has 4,800 4, partners around the world studying environmental health science and its impact on human health. The Commonweal Garden and Regenerative Design Institute, many of you know about, uh, it's a wonderful place for learning permaculture gardening and nature awareness. Um, the Juvenile Justice Program has been the most powerful advocate for the rights and needs of uh, at-risk kids in the California youth prison system for the last uh, 25 years. Uh, and uh, the new school uh, is one of our newer programs. Uh, Kira Epstein, it, could you raise your hand, Kira, is the coordinator of the new school. Marty Krasny, who just walked in, is the vice chair of the Board of Commonweal. And um, so we are a kind of think and do tank. Uh, we think and we do. And uh, that intersection of reflection and praxis uh, is, uh, is what we are about. So the announcements I'm supposed to make, um, some uh, podcasts that might interest you of the 130 that are on our website. Since you came to this uh, particular uh, gathering is Jean Shinoda Bolan and Christina Flanagan, Goddess Archetypes in the Ring Cycle and in Us, Psychological, Political, and Spiritual Parallels. Thomas Kirsch, The Red Book, Reflections on Jung and the Jungians. Um, and um, upcoming events, our beloved Rebecca Katz, who is the director of the new Healing Kitchens Institute at Commonweal. Um, uh, she did a, a program yesterday on uh, NPR with Michael Krasny with two scientists from the Buck Institute. And her uh, new book, she wrote an extraordinary book called The Cancer Fighting Kitchen, which we use in the Cancer Health Program very science-based. Her new book is called The Longevity Kitchen with an introduction by Andy Weil, and it's a fabulous cookbook. So I commend it to you all, and we were just emailing with Rebecca, and she's gonna come do a new school conversation about The Longevity Kitchen soon. On March 30th, I'll be at the Integral Yoga Institute in San Francisco, continuing what is really becoming a, a series as I try to understand archetypal psychology. That's uh, March 30th from 11 to 1 at the Integral Yoga Institute on Dolores in San Francisco. And um, 
please sign up for our mailing list if you're not on it, uh, or visit our Facebook site. And finally, uh, the New School really does run on a homeopathic budget, and that means that your support when you come, whatever you can afford to put in that little box there, really helps us out. It helps us with the actual costs of putting on the events and making this possible. So it's a, a giving forward process. We don't charge for any of our programs, um, with very rare exceptions. Sometimes we have a suggested donation, but for the most part, they are free, as education is meant to be free. So um, that's the, the preface. So the, the subject today um, is archetypal psychology in everyday life. And uh, I put out here on the table some of my friends. When I'm insecure about giving a talk, I like to bring my friends. And my friends are books. I'm a person who lives in the world of books. This is what I do. I don't watch television. I don't listen to podcasts. I just read books. And um, so I sort of arrange them with James Hillman's work closest to me. He's really the father of archetypal psychology. And then his St. Paul, if he was sort of the Christ of archetypal <laughs> psychology, his St. Paul is Thomas More, who uh, some people like, some people don't, but he's a fabulous way of getting into Hillman, who can be hard to read. So for example, if you want something really accessible, Thomas More on Soulmates, honoring the mysteries of love and relationship was a really, really accessible approach to archetypal psychology. And his beautiful book of quotations, The Education of the Heart, is a stunning collection of other sources. Um, then moving beyond Moore, we find some of the other uh, major contributors to archetypal psychology, like Noel Cobb, The Archetypal Imagination, Glimpses of the Gods in Life and Art, and somebody who is more a Jungian, but uh, Angelus Arian recommends him very highly, James Hollis, Tracking the Gods, the Place of Myth in Modern Life. And Jane, you told me about uh, him too, and you regard him very highly as well. Yeah. So um, we also have by James Hollis, The Archetypal Imagination. But the, the two main predecessors, uh, for Hillman's work, and I'm going to speak more about them, but I'm just sort of introducing it, are Carl Jung and Henry Corbin. And Carl Jung, you all know, and I've got the Red Book here, and his word and image uh, as just, uh, you know, but for me, and it's a, it's a subjective, uh, uh, my friend Eric Karpeles, who's here, would disagree with me on this. Uh, uh, for me, Jung is the greatest psychologist of the 20th century, and for others, it's Freud. I think probably for Eric, it's Freud. I don't know that, but that's my guess. Uh, but, uh, but within the world of death psychology, you can say that the fathers can sort of divide between Freud and Jung, if you wish. And that really depends on, it's a, it's a question of temperament and taste. It's not a question of which is right or wrong. Um, but uh, along with Jung, the other great predecessor of archetypal psychology that Hellman quotes is Henry Corbin. And Henry Corbin, who wrote this astonishing book called Alone with the Alone, 
creative imagination and the Sufism of Ibn Arabi, Harold Bloom, who wrote the introduction to this, and Harold Bloom is an astonishing Yale literary critic who many of you know as the great scholar on Shakespeare, but it's written across an incredible range of issues. Uh, and Harold Bloom uh, recognizes that Corbin is one of the truly great, um, uh, truly great figures in uh, the interpretation of the traditions. Uh, and uh, he compares him with Jonas Sholem and Edel as, uh, as interpreters of Christian Gnosticism or, or Kabbalah uh, uh, and so on. So, um, so Cor Corbin brings us to Ibn Arabi. And Ibn Arabi is the greatest of the Sufi philosophers and the precursor of Rumi and Hafiz, the great poets. And so what one finds in archetypal psychology is this intersection of the Jungian tradition, which brings with it the entire romantic heritage and those gleanings from the whole history of Western thought, going back to Heraclitus and Plotinus and the like, into the romantic tradition, which then was synthesized as a psychology by Jung. And then Jung became the vehicle by which the American counterculture picked up the heritage of Romanticism, and Jung became the map maker mm. of the mind maps that all of us who've been influenced by the counterculture carry with us in some sense. So that's the kind of lineage that I'm seeking to describe today, uh, is that lineage on the one hand of the Western tradition through Jung, who, who brought together in a way Freud did not, this incredibly rich tradition of uh, romanticism and its, and, and its fundamental critique of industrialism and rationalism and the scientific uh, approach. And then Ibn Arabi, who brought the, the total beauty of Islamic mysticism into a synthesis that really was, from the point of view of religious thought, an advance on the fundamental structure of both Jewish and Christian uh, traditions. Because the thing that, the great beauty of Islam is that it recognizes the enormous number of prophets that have come to different countries. And it doesn't privilege any prophet except Muhammad excessively over the others. In other words, to a degree where Judaism believed that only the Jews were the chosen people and God only spoke to the Jews, really, basically. And Christianity, you know, you had to believe in Christ or you were lost, you know. But in Islam and for Ibn Arabi, Christ was one of, Christ and Moses and many men, thousands of others were all there. And Ibn Arabi famously said, that God appears to every person differently and never appears to the same person in the same way twice. Mm -hmm. So there was this sense mm -hmm. of the incredible creative fluidity of the divine or the source or whatever one wants to call that, and that it is constantly being reborn in us almost with every breath. And that is the tradition of Ibn Arabi. And what Corbin did was to take that tradition of Ibn Arabi and to say, the imaginal realm, the realm where we see, have dreams and vision and images, is not, as Jung sometimes suggested, a projection of the self. It's not just a projection. It is an actual meeting place 
where these divine unseen influences reach down to us and we reach up to them. Now, of course, that is completely unbelievable to a secular person or a scientific rationalist. And therefore, again, it is a matter of taste and temperament as to whether one likes that approach of, you know, believing that there is an imaginal realm and, and that this mysteriousness does indeed reach down to us or not. If you like that kind of thing, then um, Corbin and the Sufi predecessors and so forth work for you. If you don't, Jung is somewhat safer ground because he was ambivalent about whether he these were simply projections or whether they had their own reality. He knew they had their own psychic reality. He knew that they didn't, you know, that, that they were independent forces psychically. And actually, you know, I'm out of my depth here. He, he also sensed and at some level deeply believed that they were independent realities beyond that. He knew that the collective unconscious was real. He knew that in mythic terms that Joseph Campbell was right, that there were all these different entities that looked similar all around the world. But the question of whether those entities were collective projections from the human psyche into uh, a world that, where they didn't really exist or whether they were independent forces that actually existed independent of the individual psyche was a question that Jung was not really clear about. And so it is possible to be a Jungian and a secularist, whereas it is not possible to be a follower of Ibn Arabi and a secularist, unless one begins to believe that scientists like Rupert Sheldrake with his sense of morphic resonance are giving us hints of how scientifically this might actually work. In other words, the sense that, um, that over time our collective beliefs create grooves in the universe. Uh, it's like platonic ideas so that these grooves become a reality that is beyond our specific reality. So I didn't know I was going to start there, but that's a start. So this is where I planned to start. Where I planned to start was by quoting my beloved colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen, who many of you know, the author of Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, and she directs the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness here and works with physicians and health professionals and, and, uh, and is a most remarkable person. And Rachel said something years ago that I've never forgotten. In fact, whenever she speaks, I start taking notes because she's so remarkable. But she said that in her view, she thought that the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. So now, that's a very ancient teaching. Rachel is not the first person to have thought of that. But there's something about the way she said it that I never heard anybody say it better. Because I'll bet you that having heard it, you'll never forget it. That the purpose of life, the purpose of life, is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. Now, what does that actually mean? On the one hand, for many of us, it's a beautiful statement. On the other hand, it raises more questions than it answers. For example, what is wisdom? 
Wisdom is not a known term in contemporary psychology for the most part. It's absolutely been banished from contemporary psychology. And what does it mean to learn to love better? And are wisdom and love sufficient? In the great traditions, there's a third term that stabilizes the dyad of love and wisdom, and that is the concept of will or work or compassionate action in the world. In other words, you have love, you have wisdom, but what do you actually do? And the question of what you actually do is will or work or compassionate action. So in the yoga tradition, uh, the three great yogas are bhakti, yana, and karma yoga, the yoga of love and devotion, the yoga of wisdom, and the yoga of work or will. Similarly, Freud said that the core realities of life were work and love, and Rollo May followed Freud but used a more ancient term and wrote a book called Love and Will. So what are we talking about when we ask about the purpose of life? And again, I heard Rachel just the other night put it beautifully because you can say, you know, purpose of life, I don't think about that very much. But here's something that Rachel said that, that um, makes it very immediate, which is what matters to you in your life right now? What matters to you now? Now, when you ask yourself what matters now, most of you will probably have something that comes up. And if you spend any time sitting and reflecting on that, it is a good question, right? And when one asks oneself, what matters now, then isn't that a way into the question of what is the purpose of my life right now? It may not have always been the purpose. And just as Ibn Arabi said that God never appears to the same person in the same way twice, we could say that our life purpose may never appear to us in the same way twice, that it's a constant evolution and flow as we understand more deeply and as experience changes who we are and what, our, uh, what faces us right now. So how do we place these questions of the purpose of our life or what matters now in the most useful frame that enables us to live as fully, deeply, and wisely as we can? And that seems to me to be the real question we face. So in order to answer that question, I suggest to you that each of us carry what I call mind maps to help us understand our world. So there's nothing mysterious about the term mind map. It just means... How do you understand yourself and how do you understand other people? And each of us has a quite unique mind map, but if you think about it, so for example, you may think to yourself, well, in my family, I've inherited this from my father and this from my mother, and you know, it may be a personal mind map. Or you may have a religious mind map. Well, I'm a lapsed Catholic. I used to be Catholic, but now I'm sort of spiritual. Or, you know, that may be. So you may have a spiritual mind map, or you may have a philosophical mind map. You may say, well, I'm an existentialist, or well, I'm basically a pragmatist, or well, I'm spiritual but not religious, or something like that. Uh, or you may um, have a literary mind map. You may identify yourself uh, with literary figures and literary tradition. There may be poets or novelists or other people who deeply uh, create your sense of who you are. Or you may have a social mind map. You may think of yourself in terms of, you know, um, you know, um, I, I'm a carpenter. I'm, you know, whatever you're your sort of social situational mind map is. Or you may have a cultural mind map. You may think of yourself, well, I'm a cultural creative, or I'm a liberal, or I'm a conservative, and you may think in those terms. Or you may have a psychological mind map. And in fact, the psychological mind maps at a certain level tended to replace the religious mind maps of the 18th and 19th century as belief in 
you know, organized religion and systems like that broke down, more and more the psychological mind maps became uh, the equivalent of the religious mind maps for the religiously or spiritually oriented. So it's interesting to think about the historical evolution of mind maps. It's going to take me a little while to get to archetypal psychology, but I wanted to put it on a frame for you to understand why I think it's useful and what I think its limits are. So our mind maps have evolved over millennia of human history. So for example, evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology are among the many disciplines that are examining the implications of this for understanding ourselves today with greater depths. Books like The Recent and Fascinating Study of Sexuality, Sex at Dawn, give us a window into the remarkable variety of ways, past and present, that humans have arranged sex lives and, more important still, love relationships. In early, if you look at it in an evolutionary point of view, in early tribal groups, there was relatively little emphasis on individual identity. You know, people didn't think of themselves as individuals. They thought of themselves as part of the tribe. Um, the, uh, the tribe was primary, and other tribes were often alien and even not human. You know, the tribe was the real people, and other nearby tribes might not even be human. Uh, and the tribe was most aware that it was surrounded by and indeed part of nature. The role of women and men were different, but typically in these early tribes, women were not subordinated to men as much as came to be the case later. And so the religious and spiritual systems were at once inseparable from the group structure and from nature itself. And there were many spiritual entities. In other words, there was like a whole range, often place-based or in the sky, they're different, but there was this plethora of different entities. Now we're gonna come back to that in archetypal psychology, which Hillman describes as a polytheistic psychology. But the point is that the point of this little excursion into evolutionary psychology is that at the beginning, we lived with archetypal mind maps. That was the origin of the human mind map, all right? Ownership existed in some tribes, but not in others, especially the groups that moved over the landscape. And often everything was shared, including partners, and generosity was a prized quality. Then, as tribes became city-states with the advent of agriculture, there was a fundamental shift in most parts of the world toward patriarchal systems, toward ownership structures of land, livestock, and indeed of women. Now, monotheism has been widely regarded as the great cultural achievement of the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, the Abrahamic tradition. But in its earliest forms, monotheism directly reflected the social structure of the new city-states, and indeed Yahweh's contract with the Jewish people directly resembled the contract drawn up between kings and their people. But monotheism was not natural to human beings at that time. It came at a high psychological and spiritual cost, hence the constant warning to the Jews that they should not go whoring after other gods, and the evidence that they clearly did. They were, by their nature, in a polytheistic world, they needed to be reminded that they were supposed to only worship Yahweh. And indeed, early on in the Hebrew Bible, there are places where there's evidence that it wasn't just Yahweh, that Yahweh was the head of a family of gods and so on. And then it became more and more monotheistic, but it was a struggle. In one sense, it was a cultural achievement, but it came at a very high cost. So, um, uh, so, 
Indeed, all forms of ownership, including the marriage contact, contract, came at a cost to earlier forms of relatedness as human communities were molded into the forms that were most efficient for ownership and control in the warring city-states where efficiency in the organization of power and resources were critical for survival. In other words, you couldn't just be nice about this because your city-state wouldn't survive. You had to be able to mobilize resources and organize armies and fight in order to survive. That that's what was going on. People fought all the time. And in order to do that, you needed these organized structures and you needed a belief system, a God system, that reinforced all the things that you needed of patriarchy and ownership and all that stuff. As the city-states became nation-states and empires, there were different solutions as to how to hold large entities together. Often efforts to enforce a single religion or a single social structure gave way, as in the Islamic empire, which was huge, to tributary systems that enabled client peoples to practice their religion if they paid, and social systems if they paid tribute to the sovereign. In other cases, there were massive efforts to convert large populations to the true religion. As the religious monotheisms grew in size and scope, the effort to craft religious belief systems that would work for millions or even a billion people, as in the case of Catholicism today, grew ever more challenging and fraught. So, next comes the triumph of humanism and science. What happened, we know, is that in the 18th and 19th century in the West, religion is the system that held everything together broke down. Humanism and science successfully challenged religion and created the secular nation-state and the dominance of science as the highest explanatory paradigm. Ideologies like communism, socialism, and capitalism took hold as large social belief structures, but the ideologies in turn lost their power, and we entered a period that can now be broadly characterized as a time of philosophical pragmatism, cultural postmodernism, and in Yeats's phrase, a broad belief that the center cannot hold. All right? So that's what happened, was the triumph after the religious systems broke down, the great monotheisms that created these ownership uh, patriarchal structures, uh, and then that broke down, and then you had the ideologies, communism, capitalism, and socialism. Capitalism emerged triumphant at some level, but then it became very clear, particularly if you care about the fate of the earth, that capitalism was completely out of control and it wasn't very easy to believe in the you know, unseen hand of capitalism as necessarily being the solution to our problem. So there was a great counter-movement. And that great counter-movement was Romanticism. There were a number of them. Uh, but Romanticism was the principal counterpoise to scientism, that is the worship of science, as the ultimate explanatory system. And William Blake, the great uh, English mystic, wrote for this mo movement when he wrote, Pray God us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep, Newton being the great scientist. So Blake says, Pray God us keep from single vision, that is the view that everything is science, and Newton's sleep, that is the view that that's all there is. Likewise, John Keats accused Newton of destroying the poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to the prismatic colors. In other words, there was a deep sense that in science alone, everything was lost. So let us ask, what is Romanticism in that real sense? And here I'm going to quote Wikipedia. Uh, it was an artistic, literary, and intellectual movement that originated in Europe toward the end of the 18th century, 
a reaction to the Industrial Revolution, but a revolt against aristocratic social and political norms of the age of enlightenment, and a reaction against scientific rationalization of nature. It was embodied most strongly in the visual arts, music, and literature. And uh, while it was mostly associated with liberalism and radicalism, in the long term, its effect on the growth of nationalism was probably most significant. And this is an important point, because if the counterculture is the inheritor of the romantic tradition, uh, we often forget that the reality of the world in which Carl Jung grew up was that the romantic tradition in Germany fueled national socialism. It fueled it. And so there is a great capacity when you turn away from enlightenment and rationalism as a belief system to the mystic, spiritual, romantic view that you can become prey, particularly when it's projected out into large communities of people, uh, to uh, more totalitarian modes of mobilizing emotion. And so the connection between Romanticism and National Socialism was never forgotten after World War II by the early pragmatic philosophers and existential philosophers who, uh, just as Romanticism had been a rejection of industrialism and scientific rationalism, they in turn saw that Romanticism had fueled Nazism and turned toward pragmatism and uh, existentialism as a critique of uh, those romantic simplicities. So the romantic movement validated strong emotion as an authentic source of aesthetic experience, placing a new emphasis on emotions such as apprehension, horror, terror, and awe, especially that which is experienced in confronting the sublimity of untamed nature and its picturesque qualities. So notice how the counterculture continues to place a high value on, um, on feeling and emotion, but our categories of emotion have shifted. We don't today think of apprehension, horror, terror, and awe as the principal responses we have to the world. We've developed a much softer romanticism. The emotional emphasis remains, but the categories of feeling have changed. What we've also continued to have, romanticism elevated folk art and ancient custom to something noble and made spontaneity a desirable characteristic. That's still true of the counterculture. Um, and it embraced the exotic, unfamiliar, and distance in modes more authentic, uh, uh, harnessing the power of the imagination to envision, envision and escape. So in response to Romanticism, then one got realism, and I'm not going to go into that in some level, but there's this constant dialogue between these different forms. But to come back to the counterculture, counterculture developed in the 60s and has had a profound effect on contemporary culture. And living in Bolinas is to live in one of the last great outposts of the counterculture. And when I arrived here in 1972, 40 years ago, it was the height of the counterculture in Bolinas. And so I've lived the last 40 years watching the evolution of the counterculture in this remarkable outpost of, of that energy. It's not by no means the only one, but it's certainly one of the uh, purer forms. And I also am delighted to be witnessing the 
remaking of the counterculture and movements like the maker movement and the do-it-yourself movement, the DYI movement, as the young people who are moving into West Marin and Sonoma and up and down the coast now are finding their own ways to recreate their inheritance with a new pragmatism on actually making stuff, which is they, they are less inclined than we are to spend all our time thinking, and they actually like to make stuff, but they're making stuff with deep resonances to the romantic tradition and to the counterculture. So I've taken the time to describe this because the romantic tradition in Europe uh, was the time when Carl Jung came of age. All right? It was the time when Carl Jung came of age, and Jung, as I said, is the earth psychologist of the counterculture, and as I said, he links us back to the whole lineage of Romanticism, back to Ficino in the Renaissance and Heraclitus and Plotinus in, in Greece. So, you know, a few thoughts about Jung. What, what, what was his view of man? His view was that man is fundamentally religious and that the questions of the second half of life are fundamentally religious questions. Uh, and his religiosity is universalist in nature, though rooted primarily in the Western tradition. And it's uh, been incredibly powerful, his concept of the self, of introversion and extraversion, his categories of thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuitive, intuition, uh, his studies of alchemy and uh, the soul are, have, have really... Uh, deeply influenced us. I, I think you can say that in the 20th century, Freud won the battle for eminence between them in psychology, with Jung in a distinct minority position, while Jung won the battle for eminence in the culture, especially the counterculture. And one can see there are more and more people uh, who are no longer seeking out uh, Freudian or neo-Freudian therapy, <coughs> but Jungian or post-Jungian therapy. I, Jung's anti-Semitism was very real. It has to be assessed in the context of our time. That was part of the talk uh, that we had with Tom Kirsch about Jung and the Red Book. Uh, Kirsch points out that although Jung did go through, had anti-Semitic uh, uh, tendencies and really did flirt with National Socialism and the Nazis, but the fact remains that many of Jung's closest colleagues in uh, the analytic movement were Jewish. And when they escaped Nazism, often with Jung's help, and spread around the world, it was often Jewish Jungians who played a key role around the world in establishing Jungian thought in different countries. So it's real, but uh, I think you have to look at it in its historical context. I like to look at Jung in the broader historical context, considering him in the light of Ibn Arabi, of Surawardi, Rumi and the Sufi mystics, Hildegard of Bingham, uh, great uh, uh, Goethe and Nietzsche, and of the traditionalist thinkers like Fritjof Schoen and René Ganon. Uh, the traditionalist thinkers, uh, more or less following Henry Corbin, took the Sufi tradition and Ibn Arabi and created a whole philosophical framework uh, that enabled them uh, to think systematically about, um, about a vision of the world in which there is one source of divine light, and that divine light, whatever you want to call it, 
then comes down and is reflected through the prisms of the different founders of the great religious traditions for different peoples. And they saw those great mystics in each great religious tradition as the uh, kernel of these religious beliefs and these civilizations. And surrounding this kernel of mysticism, there was always a shell of how that mystical insight became a moral code and became a belief structure. And there was always a tension between the mystical kernel, where the mystics all recognized each other as coming from the same source, and the shells, which became you know, the sort of framework for that particular culture. So the shells would fight with each other, even though the mystical kernels could recognize each other as all the same. So the, the, uh, the neo-traditionalists, um, like uh, Fritjof Schoen and uh, Guénon, uh, uh, created this extraordinary uh, tradition, which is still very alive today. And uh, Corbin uh, could not understand uh, why they... Um, it's a little too esoteric, but I'll say it. Why they didn't see that at the height of Shiite mysticism uh, was the same vision that Ibn Arabi had held and that um, he was surprised that they ignored the Shiite mystics and particularly the Ismaili subset of the Shiite mystics who, in Corbin's view, held the pure Ibn Arabi vision of uh, the divine. I'm sorry, that got a little abstract, but for those of you who follow that kind of stuff, it's, it's there. So... The key point I want to come back to is that Ibn Arabi saw the imaginal realm as the realm where the human seeker looks up to the divine and the divine reaches down to the human. And Jung was handicapped in a sense by his effort to make his psychology a science. Uh, so he was inclined to believe the reality of the divine, but frequently treated the divine principally as a projection of the self. Uh, and so um, for him, he could not make the claim which, which um, the Sufis made that there was a universal principle of oneness coming down from the divine and refracted out into all the tradition. So for Jung, the Christ had to be reborn in the intrapsychic space, not an active manifestation of the godhood. Uh, whereas for um, the Sufis, the Godhead, the oneness, was very, very real. So, I want to go now to the system that I think enables you in everyday life to best understand archetypal psychology. And that is a system that Rachel Remen and Lenore Leffer, who co-led the Cancer Help Program with me for 25 years, um, studied, which is called psychosynthesis. How many of you are familiar with psychosynthesis? Okay. So psychosynthesis was created by an Italian uh, psychoanalyst named Roberto Assagioli, who was a student of both Jung and Freud. But also he was uh, an esoteric student of Alice Bailey's work, the Bailey work, as it is called. But he kept his esoteric system very separate uh, from his psychology so that he, he kept that secret. And he created a very simple, teachable psychology 
that is a really interesting way of thinking about archetypal psychology. And I can describe it. You'll see how simple it is. He saw the, the psyche as a big circle. In the middle of the circle was the observing self. Rotating around the circle like satellites were the subpersonalities. And the subpersonalities were found in three levels of the unconscious, which was the big circle. The lower unconscious, which was the Freudian unconscious of drives and sexuality. The middle unconscious, which was the area that we can access if we think about it, but it isn't necessarily visible to us. And the upper unconscious, which was, again, Jung's contribution and Asajoli's contribution, they didn't believe that there was, with Freud, that there was just a lower unconscious. They believed there was an upper unconscious. And they believed that you could be just as neurotic by suppressing the upper unconscious as you could by suppressing the lower unconscious. So, for example, if there was a dimension of you that was quite angelic in some sense, or that was like deeply rooted in uh, very profound um, spiritual beliefs, and you didn't listen to it, you could become as neurotic from not listening to that upper dimension of yourself as you could from suppressing the lower. So Asajoli talked about how Freud, you know, Freud's elevator only went down to the basement on the first floor, but he wanted an elevator that went up to the second floor or whatever. You know, he, he wanted that third level to be available. So again, archetypal psychology in everyday life. Here's something you can do at home. If you sit down and make a list of your subpersonalities. You say to yourself, okay, what are my principal roles? I am a father, I am a son, I am a husband, I work at Commonweal, I'm, you know, uh, I love nature. You know, you can make your list, right? And then what you do is you write each of these subpersonality things on a separate piece of paper, and you put a blank piece of paper in the middle, which represents the observing self, and you put these other pieces of paper around you. And what you do is you practice stepping into and out of the different subpersonalities. And you, you, you ask yourself, how do I feel? What is my total experience when I step into this? And then, okay, this is a part of me, but it's not my total self. I am also this witness self. And so what it teaches is the capacity to identify and disidentify with your different subpersonalities because most of us are just buffeted by all the shifts that take place in us every day and we're not aware that we are moving in and out of these different subpersonality spaces in ourselves and by learning to consciously there's a useful memnonic for how you do this uh, uh, students of Asajoli said that you want to name the subpersonalities you want to claim them, recognize they're parts of you. You want to tame them, try to get them to disagree, stop disagreeing with each other, and you want to aim them. You name them, you claim them, you tame them, and you aim them. Now, so see how simple it is to describe psychosynthesis? It's really a simple thing to do. Oh, the only other thing I want to say is that Asajoli, if wisdom is one of the things that has disappeared from contemporary psychology, the other category that has disappeared is the concept of will. Will has disappeared from contemporary psychology. We're supposed to be just the result of all these forces acting on us. We have no independent will. Well, for Asajoli, who actually wrote a book on will, will is a fundamental concept. And if you, we go back to the point about love, wisdom, and will as these three categories, to have a psychology where will has disappeared, 
There's a cost to that, just as having a psychology where wisdom has disappeared. So you can use psychosynthesis as a way of understanding and criticizing um, archetypal psychology. I'm going to come back to that. So hold that in mind. So now I'm going to talk about archetypal psychology. So what is archetypal psychology? It was founded in the 70s by James Hillman. He, uh, his dates were 1926 to 2011. He died two years ago. He was trained in analytic psychology and became the first director of the Jung Institute in Zurich. And as I said, he describes archetypal psychology as, and here I'm drawing a lot on Wikipedia, as emerging not only from Jung, but from Henry Corbin, from Vico, and Plotinus. Now, here's the key point. Archetypal psychology relativizes and deliteralizes the notion of ego and focuses on what it calls the psyche or soul and the deepest patterns of psychic functioning, the fundamental fan fantasies that animate all of life. Archetypal psychology likens itself to a polytheistic mythology in that it attempts to recognize the myriad fantasies and myths, gods, goddesses, demigods, mortals, and animals that shape and are shaped by our psychological lives. Now, here's the key. In this framework, the ego is but one psychological fantasy within the assemblage of fantasies. Archetypal psychology is, along with the classical Jungian school and the development, developmental school, one of the three schools of post-Jungian thought. So think about that for a minute, because most psychologies, what do most psychologies do? They try to help you manage your life better in one way or another. You know? So think about emotional literacy or uh, social and emotional literacy or social and emotional intelligence that Dan Goleman talks about. What's he trying to do? He's trying to help you develop an awareness of your internal emotional states and an awareness of the states of others so that you can move more skillfully through the world. So that's also true of Asajoli. What is he trying to do? Name, claim, aim, and tame. Tame and aim your subpersonality so you can be more effective in the world. But Hillman does something very radical. He's not interested in helping your ego name, claim, aim, and tame the different parts of yourself. He is much more interested in just having you go into the jungle of your unconscious and observe the animals there with loving intention. This is very critical. He sees the ego as just one more fantasy. He sees Jung's self as just one more fantasy. So it is a postmodern psychology. It just, there is no center to hold. Now, this is where I personally, and it's a matter of temperament, disagree with Hillman. I'm not willing to live in a world where I have no center anymore. I prefer, it may be a fantasy, whatever you want to call it, but I prefer to live in a world, in Asajoli's world, in Jung's world, where there is a center, and where that center is a place I can work from. But what I get from Hillman is that instead of Asajoli just talking about subpersonalities, behind each subpersonality, Jung would have said, and Hillman would say, is a complex. And behind each complex is an archetype. 
And so when you chart your different subpersonalities of father, brother, mother, sister, yoga teacher, whatever it is, behind each of these subpersonalities is a complex of what went into it to create it for you. And behind that complex is an archetype. And when you get in trouble in life, when life really seems complicated and you seem overwhelmed by feelings or emotions or whatever that's going on, to be able to trace back to the archetype, I find to be an enormously useful thing to do. To be able to connect with the great mythologies and to be able to say, what is it that is moving in me? Because from my point of view, these things that move into us sometimes have a power that is so overwhelming that it helps me to think about them in archetypal terms. Hillman said he didn't think of the archetypes in a literal th sense. He says he thinks of them in terms of aid memoir, to aid memory, that it's a way of remembering, of recollecting, that you're not the first person to struggle with this particular archetype. And in fact, that if we look back at the mythologies that form these archetypes and the relationship between the archetypes, we can learn a lot about what might order our lives. So Thomas More says of Hillman, this is the, his great St. Paul, that uh, he portrays the psyche as inherently multiple. In Hillman's archetypal polytheistic view, the psyche or soul has many directions and sources of meaning, and this can feel like an ongoing state of conflict, a struggle with one's daimons, all right? So unlike, let us say, Buddhist psychology, in other words, if, if you ask yourselves, there are a lot of people in this room, I know, for whom Buddhist psychology has been enormously effective, and it's an incredibly beautiful psychology. But what does Buddhist psychology, in effect, try to help us do? You know, it tries to help us uh, detach from all these things and raise ourselves up to a level of universal compassion in which these struggles no longer bother us particularly, basically. We've just evolved to that plane. Well, I've been trying this stuff for 70 years, and folks, I'm not there yet, you know? I'm just not there yet, and moreover, I don't think I'm gonna get there. So since these struggles seem to be a continuing factor in my life, maybe I should spend more time reflecting on the archetypes, because they don't seem to leave me alone, you know? So, um, According to Hillman, polytheistic psychology can give sacred differentiation to our psychic turmoil. Think about that. It can give sacred differentiation to our psychic turmoil. <laughs> Hillman says, the power of myth, its reality, resides precisely in its power to seize and influence psychic life. The Greeks knew this so well, and so they had no depth psychology and psychopathology such as we have. They had myths. We have no myths as such, instead, depth psychology and psychopathology. Therefore, psychology shows myths in modern dress, and myths show our depth psychology in ancient dress. That's the key sense. So you don't have to buy all of archetypal psychology to find it useful. You don't have to buy its refusal to see the self as a centering reality. You can choose. Hillman was very clear that he didn't want to create a school of psychology. He wanted to create, he wanted to contribute to a field as opposed to a, uh, to a school. So psychopathology for Hillman 
is the speech of the suffering soul or the soul's suffering of meaning. A great portion of Hillman's thought attempts to attend to the speech of the soul as it is revealed in images and fantasies. And Hillman had his own definition of soul. You find really interesting different definitions, like Parker Palmer talks a lot about his view of soul. Uh, but Hillman says that the soul is not a thing, not an entity, nor is it something that is located inside a person. Rather, soul is a perspective rather than a substance, a viewpoint towards things. It is reflective, it mediates events and makes differences. Soul is not to be located in the brain or head, but human beings are in psyche. The world, in turn, is the anima mundi, or the world ensouled. And indeed, Hillman's written some really beautiful things about the ensouled world, which, if we're interested in, as Commonweal is, it's the core interest of Commonweal is in healing ourselves and healing the earth and the relationship between those two things. And Hillman has not only written about the individual psyche, but also about the soul of the world in some very interesting way. So, coming back again, and just to emphasize it, to this relationship of psychosynthesis and archetypal psychology, um, Asajoli shares with Jung the sense that the self is a core reality that can be sustained in your mind map. That if you ask yourself who you are, right, and what matters to you now, that there is some core sense of ourselves that survives all our changes. I think I'll read a poem now by Stanley Kunitz that reflects this for me. It's called The Layers. How many people know this poem, The Layers? Good. Then there's some people who don't. So, The Layers by Stanley Kunitz. I have walked through many lives some of them my own. And I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look, before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat, with my will intact to go wherever I need to go, and every stone on the road precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered, and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, live in the lairs, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. So that is an archetypal poem. You see what I'm saying? 
He talks about having made himself a tribe of his affections. He talks about he's walked through many lives, some of them his own. He talks about the fact that there is some principle that remained. You know, and even and he wrote this when he was close to 100, didn't he, Eric? I believe that's true. Yeah, he wrote it when he was very old, and um, and uh, and he knew he was not yet done with this change. I have a friend named Paul Gorman I was with the other day, started the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. I was playing him a, a rather um, uh, dark Bob Dylan song, and, and Gorman listened to it, and he said, what a mature theology that is. So this Kunitz poem is a mature theology in that sense, you know, that even in this darkness, that there is this heroic light. So, I think what I'll do next, and then I want to open it up in a little bit. I'm going to, uh, there's one book that I decided speaks most to the new school audiences that tend to gather out here by James Hillman called The Force of Character and the Lasting Life. How many people have looked at this, just out of curiosity? Okay, good. Few people did. Um, so the beauty of this book, so if, if you're a younger person and you wanted a way into this stuff, you might pick Thomas More's Soulmates uh, because um, it's about the struggles of soul relationships. Helps for older people too, but it's basically a younger book. But The Force of Character in the Lasting Life is about getting old. And, um, and I just want to read a few quotes from it. Um, because um, I think that it, this is an example of how archetypal psychology can help us. I think what I want to say is that Hillman's core thesis was that the aging and dying process is a process in which the ego, which is the sort of dominating force in younger life, where you try to get everything to be subordinated to the ego, the ego, along with the body, begins to lose its purchase. It begins to lose ground. And what happens is that the subpersonalities or the um, archetypes getting more and more free of the ego begin to speak up. And they can be cranky or they can be uh, outrageous. I mean, how many of you know people in their 80s and 90s or even before that who really are quite outrageous in their candor? Uh, I mean, my mother was a great example of this. I mean, she was totally outrageously candid. And, and you can see that the, that the ego, which used to keep my mother reined in, uh, you know, had lost control. And so these different archetypes or subpersonalities were out in full flower. And, and so um, Hillman is interested in celebrating that as opposed to... Um, uh, as opposed to decrying it in some sense. Um, he writes, uh, 
T.S. Eliot wrote that old men ought to be explorers. I take this to mean following curiosity, inquire into important ideas, risk transgression. According to the brilliant Spanish philosopher Jose Ortega y Gasset, inquiry is our nearest equivalent to the Greek aletheia, an activity of mind that initiated all of Western philosophizing, quote, an endeavor to place us in contact with the naked reality concealed behind the robes of falsehood. Falsehood often wears the robes of commonly accepted truths. A therapy of ideas could free us from the conventions that keep our minds from committing interesting transgressions, right? Um, to see the full force of character up close, we must be involved wholeheartedly in the events of aging. This takes both curiosity and courage. Um, uh, so uh, here he is. Remember we talked with Rachel Remen about the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. Well, a lot of people, when they get older, wonder why they don't feel wiser, or at least try to look wise, or <laughs> act wise, right? But in fact, like I was talking to my mother-in-law, Marianne Patton, who's 101 going on 102, and I said to her two nights ago, I said, Marianne, how do you feel inside? How old do you feel inside? And she said about 30, right? <laughs> so the body's age, but there's this sense of us that we each have a set point of some. Mimi, how old do you feel inside? Oh, yeah, I was nodding my head. Oh, 30? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd say that's where I am, more or less, you know? So there's some set point that we all have inside where, and how wise were we at 30, right? <laughs> Not very wise, right? And so... So this question, what does it mean to grow in wisdom and learn to love it? Well, maybe wisdom is the Socratic wisdom that you know that you do not know. You do, and so listen to this. C.J. Jung, Jung, who despite identifying the archetype of the old wise man and even identifying himself with it at times, wrote, I console myself with the thought that only the fool expects wisdom. Uh, and here's uh, T.S. Eliot, quote, had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet-voiced elders bequeathing us merely a, a receipt for deceit. Uh, in other words, um, and again and again, he has these beautiful quotes. Let me see if I can find them. From great Buddhist um, teachers and so on. I may not find the exact quote, but there was one beautiful little haiku poem that said, Last year, an old foolish monk. This year, an old foolish monk. <laughs> so, you know, there's this sense that it's okay to recognize that as we age, as the body declines, as the ego loses purchase, as the various subpersonalities begin speaking up, um, that um, we may not get wise at all, uh, but we can be more aware of the nature of our foolishness, you know, and that foolishness may have its own sacred quality. One of the most hilarious um, chapters in this book, which I won't try to summarize, is on erotics, uh, because um, uh, here's just a brief quote. According to a tradition that goes back to the problematica attributed to Arist Arist Aristotle, 
Old age is the period of life when lust becomes most extravagant. The old are under the influence of Saturn and therefore succumb easily to the furor melancholicus, a condition of psyche that fosters creative art, prophecy, and exaggerated emotional instability. Uh, and um, uh, this, uh, uh, so y you have this wonderful poem from Yeats, who was a romantic. You think it horrible that lust and rage should dance attendant attention on my old age. They were not such a plague when I was young. What else have I to spur me into song? Right? Oh. Yeats at the age of 67, I'm 69, wrote, I shall be a sinful man to the end and think upon my deathbed of all the nights I wasted in my youth. <laughs> you know? And then here's Yeats again. He bemoaned his physical decrepitude, consumed my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal, right? And, th and this beautiful line, oh, what shall I do with this absurdity, O oh heart, O oh troubled heart, this caricature, decrepit age that has been tied to me as to a dog's tail? Never had I a more excited, passionate, fantastical imagination, nor an eye, nor an ear and eye, that more expected the impossible. So, uh, and you find that in Whitman, you find it again and again. And one of uh, Hillman's perspectives is he shared or he frequently used the differentiation that Nietzsche developed between the Apollonian and the Dionysian as two key archetypes. And the Apollonian is the sunlit, ordered, world, and the Dionysian is the world of dark and, and night. And from his point of view, uh, what happened to Dionysus as an archetype was that he was defeated by the Titans and cut up into hundreds of different pieces, and then those pieces scattered and regenerated themselves all, all over. But that one of the regenerations was the god of the underworld. So um, for... Um, if we think of this retreat of the ego, the decline of the body, the freeing of the subpersonalities or the archetypes, then one can see the Dionysian quality of all these things in counter-distinction to the Apollonian, which seeks order and pure moral codes and clarity in all things. And so I think all of us in one way or another have this struggle within us between that part of us which is trying to live by the eternal Buddhist or yogic or Christian or Jewish verities and ethics and everything else, and then this Dionysian quality within us, which can be enormously powerful and which represents both the forces of death, the forces of love, the forces, you know, some of the very deep psychic powers that we carry within ourselves. Um, here's a beautiful quote from Emerson about this. Um, Emerson, I think, really understood uh, this in many beautiful ways. We do not determine what we will think, right? We can't control the archetypes. We only open our senses, clear, clear away as we can all obstruction from the fact, and suffer the intellect to see. That's like Hillman going into the jungle of the unconscious. We have little control over our thoughts. We are prisoners of ideas. They catch us up for moments into their heaven and so fully engage us that we have, take no thought for the morrow, gaze like children without, without an effort to make them our own. By and by, we fall out of the rapture. 
Bethink us what we've seen, what we have seen, bethink us what we have been and what we have seen, and repeat as truly as we can what we have beheld. All our progress is an unfolding, like the vegetable bud. Hillman calls archetypal psychology an acorn theory, that it's the unfolding of our fate, our, you know, our, our daimon. Well, here's Emerson. All our progress is an unfolding, like the vegetable bud. You have first an instinct, then an opinion, then a knowledge, as the plant has root, bud, and fruit. Trust the instinct to the end, though you can render no reason. It is vain to hurry it. By trusting it to the end, it shall ripen into truth, and you shall know why you believe. Uh, but let us end these didactics, and here's the beauty of it. I will not, though the subject might provoke it, speak to the open question between truth and love. I shall not presume to interfere in the old politics of the skies. The cherubim know most, the seraphim love most. The gods shall settle their own quarrels. Mm -hmm. So you see that question of love and wisdom, right? Found here as uh, love and truth. And uh, Emerson recognizes it as uh, the open question uh, that the gods are going to have to settle as to the primacy of love or wisdom. I think I may uh, stop there, but um, before I open it to questions, I have a friend here named Tim Weed. Tim, would you play us a little something so we can reflect for a few minutes? Maybe one of the pieces you played the other, something of your own. It'd be nice if you played something of your own. We'll just have a little musical moment and then we'll open it to questions. Okay. Do you all know Tim Weed? He's a remarkable musical talent from West Moran, who uh, is part of our Cancer Help Program and part of the Commonwealth community. He does the music night in the Cancer Help Program. Most extraordinary man. Did a wonderful house concert the other night up in Inverness. tuning up, let me just mention, you know, when I talk analytically, you hear it in one way. Then I, when I read poems, you hear it in a totally different way. So there's, right there is the kind of love-wisdom thing, right? The poems are sort of love. The, the talk, for better or for worse, is whatever form of wisdom we can get. But music is one of the deepest forms of connection to the archetypal world. And so it's nice to get a little bit of that. Changes our conversation.
thought about archetypal psychology for a long time. You've immersed yourself in many of the worlds we've been talking about. I just wondered if you have any reflection at all on uh, the conversation. Well, first of all, Michael, I just want to thank you for so many of the illuminating insights that you shared in your own talk. I mean, I'm always uh, amazed at Michael's uh, not only breadth, but uh, depth of knowledge over many fields. Um, I guess um, I'll just speak, uh, make a couple of reflections from my own experience as an astrologer. I think one thing that has really struck, a couple of things. First of all, um, because I began as a skeptic with regard to astrological theory and practice, um, but what has struck me, number one, is the, uh, how consistent and precise the correlations are between the positions of planetary bodies and human experience on this plane. Um, and uh, uh, so that relationship between, that intimate relationship between uh, the world around us, the cosmos, and, uh, and the soul. Second thought, uh, picking up on one of your themes, Michael, is that um, what I have found is that, um, especially when people are going through some very difficult times, it's so easy to feel as if, uh, you know, we're flawed, you know, aboriginally flawed. There's something wrong with us. So when I, uh, uh, if I'm able to do this, to show the relationship between these planetary archetypes and the particular kind of suffering that people are going through, then the universe is, is no longer just their own private 
uh, struggle. It's not a form of psychopathology. It has a basis in a universe which has meaning and purpose. And so I would say those are a couple of thoughts that I, would, uh, that I have. Well, thank you, Toby. And, as, and, and absolutely you're right to, to pick out um, astrological um, insight as fundamentally archetypal in nature and, and how powerful it is. I and many others who've come to you for readings, um, you know, find, find that to be deeply true. Another astrologer in our midst is Connie Holmes, who's sitting at the back of the room, and another astrologer who I consult. Connie, any reflections from your perspective on that? Well, um, I just second what Toby said. It was a, a beautiful kind of uh, unfolding of the meaning of archetypal psychology and what it offers. And uh, Toby was so eloquent in terms of um, describing how it is that astrological archetypes reflect and refract human experience and how they can help people, in the, particularly in the midst of struggle, find some sense of meaning and purpose and depathologize um, psychic turmoil and conflict. Um, so the only thing I would have to add is that my love for archetypal psychology and for the archetypes as evidenced in astrology really has to do with um, Rudolf Otto's book, The Idea of the Holy, and the concept of the mysterium tremendum, that through the, through the archetypes, and through the symbolism of astrology, which is sort of the language of the archetypes, we approach this tremendous mystery, right? So I think that this is the real contribution of archetypal psychology is the, is the elevation of mystery. Um, so that's why I love it. Mm, thank you. Mimi Calpestri is somebody who has been steeped in Hillman for many years. Um, any thoughts or reflection? Yeah. I was thinking about the fact that I am so steeped in Hillman, and you and I have had conversations about this, and how there's um, there's not a box thing about the way he presents himself and his ideas. It's not a box, that it's very open, and it lends itself open to someone adding and thinking of and being referred to, just as you in your talk gave us so much from all these different writers and thinkers and um, world shapers. Uh, I feel Hillman does this too, that it's not here it is, it's, well, now here's the beginning. Right. Uh, what are you going to do with it? Right. That, that Hillman gives us, for those of, uh, who couldn't hear Mimi's voice, that that Hillman gives us uh, a beginning place, not a box, uh, and says, here's the beginning, what are you going to do with it? So it's an invitation to us yes. to explore these archetypal forces in our own dreams, in our own lives, in our own struggles. And as Connie and Toby so beautifully put it, these archetypes enable us to depathologize our struggles and, as Hillman says, to give a sacred background to these struggles so that we can see them in sacred terms. And when we can see our suffering in sacred terms in that way, it changes it completely. 
completely. It's no longer a personal failing. It's no longer a personal weakness. It is that we all contain these multitudes. You know, Hillman speaks so beautifully of each of us as a boarding house. And it contains some characters who come out by day and play by the rules and others who only come out at night or don't come out at all and play by completely different rules, you know. And so what happens typically when two people fall in love is that at first they see what feels like this complete mystic union between them, you know, that they're destined for each other and sort of born for each other. And then as they, if they do come together, they come together, then they begin to meet the other characters in each other's boarding houses. And, you know, so not only do you face the struggle of dealing with the characters in your own boarding house, which is, but you deal with the struggle of your beloved's boarding house. And, you know, then if you have a group like Commonweal trying to work together, you got 30 or 40 boarding houses, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a cacophony of, uh, of disparate sources, you know, so uh, the more people, the more boarding houses. So, Jane Shaw, you've thought about these things for a long time. What are your reflections? I'm sorry, Jane, what is your last name? Mickelson. Mickelson, I'm sorry, Jane Mickelson. I apologize. Jane Mickelson. What I appreciated about Hillman was... Uh, the lack of sentimentality. Uh, and I think that multiplicity of voices, that very postmodern uh, way of honoring individual voice, um, it removes that patina of sentimentality from me. I think one of the dangers of the romantic movement, as, as I grew up with the 60s version thereof, was this um, glossing over of prickly bits, uh, claiming totem animals that in reality would love to eat you for dinner. Um, mm -hmm. But just this, he scraped, for me, he scraped away that layer and, um, and returned the wildness to, to the archetypes. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. So uh, as Jane Mickelson just said, for those of you who couldn't hear as clearly, uh, how Hillman stripped away uh, the sentimentality that so often um, uh, accompanies immature versions of the romantic movement. And, um, and rather than, you know, sort of the fuzzy view of us as human beings, was willing to look directly at the struggle and see it as nature, and uh, as and Hillman speaks, actually uh, Moore, speaking of Hillman, says that what Hillman did, he says that, uh, you know, this love is absolutely central to Freud, to Jung, to archetypal psychology. But Moore claims that love is even more central to Hillman because, and he considers Hillman as great a figure as Jung. I think that's highly debatable. In fact, I don't think it's true but I understand why Moore believes that. But he, he says that, that in archetypal psychology that love is even more central because for Hillman, you loved all the content of the unconscious, that whatever it was, whatever these you know, beings or, or entities or archetypes were, you sought to approach them with, with love. Um, so, uh, so that's very helpful. Uh, I want to open it up now, ask people to keep comments relatively brief and to the point, and please say your name first, and let's hear from other folks. Unless you've all been stunned into silence, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, your name? 
Yeah. Molly Johns. Right. Um, so, Michael, so what, for you, like, how would you define the soul? Like, for yourself, what, where <coughs> do you... Now, that's a great question. How would I define the soul? <clears throat> well, first of all, I don't know. I mean, you know, the only thing I know is that I don't know. All right. But let me say a, a word about how Hillman and Moore saw the soul. This is actually critical. I should have said it earlier in the talk, so I'm so glad you pointed it out. Most of us think of ourselves, those, those of us who give any meaning to spirit, uh, think of ourselves as body, our physical body, our emotional states, our mental states, our spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. Although the way most people say it, which is very telling, is physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. That's telling because they list emotional before mental, whereas in the great traditions, mental is a higher level than emotional. But given that it's a romantic movement, we tend to list emotional before mental. We think of our emotional states as more truly who we are than our mental state. So, but in the tradition that, that Hillman and Jung and uh, Moore and all the others came from, there's a big distinction between soul and spirit. And soul is very close to the body. It's soft, moist, dark. It contains the, the multiplicity of all the subpersonalities in our being. And it's what actually experiences life. And spirit is that aspect of ourself which soars into the sunlight. It's very Apollonian. And it soars into the places where we're pure and we live by, you know, the golden rule and we, you know, are pure compassion and wisdom and so on and so forth. And so um, this distinction between soul and soul stays very close to the body. It stays close to our actual physical experience of life. So I don't know what soul is, um, but I find it a very useful referent and category. And so for Hillman and Moore, they describe archetypal psychology as a soul-centered psychology, as opposed to a mind-centered psychology, which is very mental, or a spirit-centered psychology, which you might say Buddhist psychology is. This is a soul-centered psychology. And therefore, it is attending to what this acorn within us, which is the soul, which has its own evolution and its own destiny, that we're each born in the Greek sense with a daimon. Um, and they also speak of soul interchangeably with psyche. So in the centrality of love, just to take that point, um, if you look at the myth of Eros and Psyche, uh, which they do in some length. What happens? Uh, Eros is seen as this young, this youth. He shoots his arrow. He wounds the virginal psyche, and psyche begins to suffer. And so, in love, there is this relationship between Eros and psyche, which, in their mutual suffering and sort of negotiation, both grow. Eros grows up matures, and Psyche loses her virginal quality and must take a broader view in order to incorporate love of what this relationship between love and Psyche is really about. Um, soul also in Hillman's sense and Moore's sense, soul loves beauty, 
where there is beauty, there is soul, they say. So they're qualities. And again, uh, Hillman, remember that quote from Hillman, that he sees soul not as an entity, not as a thing, not even as within the head, but as a perspective in some sense, you know. I love uh, Emerson's quote that what each of us contributes to the world is an angle of vision, you know. And so you could speak of soul as an angle of vision within us. It's a way of looking at things. But I don't know what it is. I just, uh, I like to ask what others think. Yes? Could we add consciousness in that? Could we add consciousness in that? That's a really good question. I, I don't know. Let's think about where consciousness fits in that. So, um, I don't... Uh, that's a really good question. I, I don't want to give a facile answer. Um, I mean, is consciousness psyche? Maybe consciousness is psyche. But to me, consciousness, I guess, is that witness place from which we see everything. So in that we can actually bring ourselves to see the interaction of soul and psyche or the interaction of the Apollonian and the Dionysian or the in interaction of uh, the Pueri Ternus, the young, you know, the youthful idealistic part of ourselves and Senex, the old man, uh, you know, and the, the difference between uh, the, the Pueri Ternus, the youthful, the eternal youth and the, the cold wisdom of, of the old man. Um, you know, since we can witness all those things, it seems to me that consciousness is different from any of the archetypes. It's the place from which we witness them. And whether psyche is an archetype, it seems to me it is. After all, we, you know, it's seen, presented as the virginal, um, the virginal being that is wounded by... Uh, and and uh, so there are so many perspectives from which one can take this work. Um, other questions? Yes. Pauline Tesler, who, by the way, is the director of the Integrative Law Institute at Commonweal and literally wrote the book on collaborative divorce and, uh, is, uh, and actually has a very deep immersion in these questions of uh, evolutionary biology and, you know, thinks about whether marriage might not actually be better as five-year contracts that we keep signing with each other if we live through the first five years. So, Pauline. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, that's sort of at the uh, operational level, but you've precipitated me into a much deeper place of things. This is very rich and helpful when you're thinking. But the question that kept rising for me is, I'm really interested personally being a year older than you in these archetypes of aging and what happens to ego. Um, and I'm wondering if there are any women writing in the way that Hillman is. A close friend of mine is Jean Boland, who's written about the crone archetype, Hecate. Um, but the, the Apollonian Dionysian back and forth doesn't, I don't think, I don't speak for all women, but I speak for myself and the ones I talk deeply with. And I don't know that we would resonate very much with with an equivalent to the Randy old man as what gets liberated when you go, um, goes away. I'm thinking about what Margaret Mead wrote about, I can't remember how she put it in, in her autobiography. She was writing about how menopause is the point at which women 
get free to do their real work in life. And I'm just wondering where any of those thoughts might fit, because you've read so widely about this and thought so deeply about it. What a great question. Let's start there. I've been wondering myself the same thing, and I think, I imagine that there are some women who've written in archetypal psychology. Jane, do you know? I mean, obviously, you're a woman writing in this field. Well, my field is not precisely archetypal right. psychology. Right. I'm a mythologist. Mythologist, and right. I view this as one of a number of systems right. that, that employ mythology. I don't know if Marion Woodman would be... There's, there's a thought. I don't think she, she might... Uh, uh, Qualify. Fit that, uh, yeah, I think it's such a good question, but Hillman is not without... I mean, I, I think that, quite honestly, I think it's a weakness of the field, that they're not more women. But listen to this. Um, he says, male fantasy is said to be more concrete and organ-focused, female more imprecise and encompassing, and so on. Um, uh, but he talks about um, the actress uh, Jean Moreau chose roles and directed films that allowed her to, quote, grow old disgracefully. <laughs> At 64, she played an exotic, flame-haired free spirit who, in order to save a young girl from a disastrous marriage, intervenes by sexually straddling the groom. Her career and the recognition of her abilities increased in later years together with her provocative eroticism. When you speak of sexuality, Moreau said, most people expect physical sex, but sexuality starts in the mind with imagination. Alice Neal, one of America's best painters of the 20th century, said she loved, quote, that filthy character, unquote, Jean Genet. Do, quote, do you know, because everything that happened, he turned into literature. It couldn't be too base for him. And then Beatrice Wood, a ceramicist who lived to be 105, continued even after the age of 85 to play, quote, the courtesan flirting with outrageous coquettishness. And then, you know, Anais, Anais Nin, May Sartan, and so on and so forth, Colette. So he has his set of women who fit his image, but it's a male voice speaking and making the selection. So it seems to me that the critique uh, stands, even though he can point to uh, women in that category. Yeah. Other, yes, Marty Krasny. First of all, thank you. Um, it really was enormously rich and rangy and provocative. Um, I'm not sure this is coming in at an angle of vision, and I'm, I'm not sure whether it's truly additive or just digression, but I was in India for the first time in my life for a couple of weeks earlier this year, and so I spent most of 2013 immersing myself in Indian culture. And as you were speaking, I was reflecting on, I'm now reading the Mahabharata, and there were at least two places in the first half of it, as far as I've gotten, where hermaphroditism is actually the principal plot impelling um, impetus. And um, that seems not to be present. Tiresias maybe, but hardly at all, as far as I can remember, in either the Greco-Roman or the biblical tradition. And the other layering that's, that I'm beginning to know about, and this is from the standpoint of an innocent just beginning, is the way in which both reincarnation and the caste system cross-cut some of what you're talking about, and particularly the caste system, which I've just begun to learn about. But the way in which that establishes somebody now because of what they did then and justifies it. 
Mm, beautiful comment. Uh, I agree with you from my knowledge of the, of the Jewish uh, tradition. Um, my memory of the Greek tradition is that there is indeed in Plato and some of the early Greeks a discussion of how human male and female were once a single entity and, and they, does anybody else remember that? Yeah, that's my, so my memory is that you do find that. Do, but do this you, isn't a splitting, this is a transposition. I see what you're saying, right. This is a, a man who can only be killed, um, can, cannot be killed by a man I get it. As a person who was born woman, became man, and she enables him to be... To I get it. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Um, I, it's a really interesting, a really interesting perspective. Lilith and <coughs> There's Lilith. Lilith would be the closest I would yeah. Right. But the cast one also just really intrigues me about how it establishes you in a place yeah. Actually, Marty, the thing, the place that your comment takes me is that when I think about um, the Abrahamic faiths and, in other words, it seems to me fascinating that if we just take the Hindu tradition and the Abrahamic traditions, that the Hindu tradition was a polytheistic tradition. There are lots of gods, right? And then what happens from that, the daughter religion of Hinduism is Buddhism. And in Buddhism, you know, basically all the gods disappear and you have this one pure uh, shining light figure, the Buddha, essentially, you know. Uh, and in, obviously in Tibetan Buddhism and some of the Buddhism, some of, a whole bunch of the gods, the wrathful deities continue. But in the purest sense, you have this movement uh, uh, from a polytheistic mother tradition to a, uh, a, a monotheistic uh, system. And likewise, in the Abrahamic traditions, you have this movement from the um, somewhat monotheistic gods and the patriarchs who were, sort of, who were all doing all kinds of things to each other, right? Uh, and then you have Christ, which again, who again becomes pure. So it seems to me that if you look at the evolution of the mother religions and the daughter religions, you have this movement away from the polytheistic traditions and toward these sort of pure light traditions. And that on the one hand, that is a movement and an achievement of civilization. But on the other hand, it comes at the cost of uh, moving the polytheistic uh, forces into the background where they are more or less successfully suppressed in different ways and emerge as pathologies of different kinds. I don't know if that's true, but it's a, a view that I've held for a while. Other comments or questions, and then we will take a break. Yes. Harriet Moss. Harriet Moss. I think that um, one of the concepts that Hellman has that I love so much is that we tend to think of the of images living inside us, but in fact, yeah. we are living inside images. That's so beautiful. And the whole concept of having this tribe of of gods and goddesses that are living around us, and we can go, well, I blame her for that. It's so <laughs> fabulous. Yes. It's, it's very helpful. Yes, it's very helpful. In fact, uh, somebody who said that, and I forget somewhere in this literature I ran across it, is the great French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, who once famously said that he was not interested in talking about how uh, the gods lived within human beings, but how, rather in how the gods lived through 
human beings, that, you know, that in effect uh, they were living through us. And, uh, yeah. Other comments? Yes. Could you comment on the, the connection between soul and spirit or psyche and eros is kind of the foundation for creativity? I think Hillman, is that where that comes from? But, I mean, that's a concept that I've read. They're interrelationship. They're really interdependent. Yeah. Being creative, to be creative. Yes. Um, that's a great question. So, um, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm trying to stick close to... Let me say again, because I said it in the materials... I've been studying this for about eight months, so I'm early on, and there are people who, like Mimi, who've been studying it for 30 years. So, you know, so this was a kind of a, one of a series of small coming out parties for me to, you know, <laughs> begin to experiment with what it's like to actually talk about a new field of work. Um, I mean, it is clearly true that, yeah, it is absolutely clearly true that the struggle of psyche and eros is profoundly linked to creativity. That's for sure. Um, but the relationship of that to what was the other to... Um, well, just the, uh, the soul, <coughs> the uh, psyche, psyche and eros, right. which are the right. similar equivalents. Soul and spirit. Soul and spirit. Soul, soul and... Well, except psyche and eros are not the same as soul and spirit. Because psyche and spirit are not quite the are not the same. I don't think. I don't think. Uh, um, I think psyche. I, I'm not good enough at this yet to answer that question. Yeah. Other thoughts. Does anybody else know that? Does anybody know? Jane, do you know this? Not not well enough to try to define. Right. I, I right. <laughs> Do you know it, Mesa? Or are you asking a question? I'm uh, Mesa Brook, and, and as an artist, right. I would say the relationship between Eros and Psyche is your, the experience of reaching or falling into creativity is Eros, which then gets filtered through my personal experience of psyche mm. and emerges. Mm. Would, would you say that's true, Michael? Um, I'm vague on it, but there are, um, there are these two opposite forces, and that's what it takes for the creative process. Um, but I'm as vague here as everybody else on the definition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I sense it as it comes from conflict and it has to it's emerging out of it it's the force we need to get through it it's from here conflict to there and we can't help it thank you Mike Eric were you going to make a comment? I was just going to comment that another great source of creativity is withholding is what? withholding withholding Mm -hmm. Which is different. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to associate love with creativity without the absence of it. Uh-huh. 
I think that's a really important, I mean, that's, yeah, I, I think, and I was thinking about the relationship of creativity to the melancholy also. And, uh, you know, that famous connection, which I think we referenced. I saw a question, yeah? Oh, yeah, I, I was just going to have, I have a different take on, uh, on creativity. I'm also a visual artist and I have a show at the moment. A wonderful show upstairs, upstairs, which I hope all of you will visit if you have a chance. But for me, um, creativity is like, it, it's like this underground aquifer in a certain sense. And it's just, you know, it's not, there are not forces that I can define and say this or that or psyche and soul and whatever. It's really just um, mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, I don't want to call it a trance state exactly, but when the artist or the vehicle becomes a vessel, then whatever those forces are, enter that vessel, mm -hmm. and then the, the creative process begins, whether it's on paper or dance. Or <clears throat> mm -hmm. Thank you. Beautiful comment. Last couple of comments, and then we'll break up and talk informally. Anybody else want to be heard? Great. Well, thank you all for coming, and uh, I welcome um, uh, personal comments, uh, corrections, and suggestions for... Uh, improving my grasp of this material. I'm sorry to get up in front of you as a novice to talk about it, but I had to start somewhere and I thought I'd start with a friendly audience. So, so thanks for coming. And please... Uh, <laughs>